Hello and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner. I am the author of The Other Side of Nothing, Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, and a whole lot of other books about Zen and other stuff. This podcast is supported by your donations, and if you'd like to donate, you can go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon. Patreon accounts, those are my main and usually only ways of making a living, and I appreciate your support. But as always, this podcast is offered for free, so you don't got to support me if you don't want to. So I'd like to start off today's podcast by apologizing for not doing a podcast for a while. Things have been kind of busy in my life. I've managed to keep up my YouTube videos pretty well. Those are at youtube.com slash hardcore zen if you want to look at them. But doing anything else has been kind of difficult. And this podcast was one of the things that fell by the wayside. But here I am. I'm back again. And hopefully it'll be more of a regular occurrence from now on. Let's keep our fingers crossed. So you may have noticed that also different in the beginning of this podcast was that I gave the title of, uh, when I said I'm the author of, I said I'm the author of The Other Side of Nothing. That is my new book. It is called The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being. I had to actually read this for myself because I kept changing the subtitle, and that's what we finally settled on, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being. We had a whole bunch of other versions of it. But I thought what I would do today is give you a little preview of the book. I have already recorded the audiobook version of The Other Side of Nothing, but I'm having a little bit of trouble getting it up. Audible.com, God bless them, they're a good company and they've helped me out a lot, but they're a little difficult to get a hold of, and the book has been available in print form since May 10th, which was just a few days ago, but supposedly the audiobooks can go up on the day that the print book is available. Only audible.com's system won't let me upload my audible audiobook. And I've been writing them emails and waiting for responses, but we'll see what happens. I hope within the next few weeks we'll be able to have the audiobook out. So those of you who are waiting for it uh, will be able to listen to it. But for those of you who are sick of waiting, I thought I would give you kind of a sneak preview. Now, I'm not going to just cut and paste the audiobook into this podcast because I thought about doing that, but it seems a little boring. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you my favorite chapter. Uh, My favorite chapter of this book, The Other Side of Nothing, is chapter 36, and it's called Who Walked My Dog? Now, I'm really happy with this book. I I think it's, it's probably the best one I've written so far. I hope I'll write an even better one next time. But for now, this is the best Brad Warner book you're, you're going to find. And much better than Hardcore Zen or any of the others that, uh, that have been selling for years. But my favorite part is this essay called, well, a chapter called Who Walked My Dog? I write my books in a kind of scattershot way. I just write various chapters with kind of an eye on a theme, but not really putting it together. I don't really put it together until the end. 
I look at the chapters that I've gotten written, and then I then I order them, organize them. And I don't really remember how deep into the writing of the book I was before I came up with this chapter, but I, I like it. And I thought I'd read you part of it, and maybe we'll see. I might comment on it a bit as I read it, uh, which is why I didn't want to use the already recorded audiobook version so that I could actually comment on it. So let me just uh, get into it. It is chapter 36, as I said, so we're, it's kind of deep into the book. It's not uh, chapter one. It's not right at the beginning. I, like I said, I don't remember if I wrote it early in the process or later in the process, but uh, it uh, seemed to fit around chapter 36, and that's where I put it, which makes it near the end of the book. There's, I think, ooh, wait a minute, I can tell you exactly how many chapters there are because I got the book right in my hand. 45. There are 45 chapters. So this is, uh, this is uh, quite near the end of the book, and it's, I believe, the longest chapter. If it's not the longest chapter, it's one of the longest chapters. And I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'm just going to read you part of it. But let's, let me just read it because I think it kind of explains itself. I don't think I need to explain what I'm about to read. So here we go. Now, I've, uh, I'm skipping the first couple pages of the chapter and kind of picking up, you know, right uh, two or three pages into the chapter. Just a few minutes ago, I took a break from writing to go out and walk Ziggy Pup. I decided to use the opportunity to try to figure out who this me was who was walking the dog. So Ziggy Pup is my dog, and if you've watched my YouTube videos, you've seen him because I put a, a cameo by Ziggy in every every episode. And I, I decided in the book to call him Ziggy Pup. We don't really call him Ziggy Pup that often, but uh, but that's his his full name, as it were. So uh, let me continue reading. To the other people on the street, I'm sure we looked pretty ordinary. Just a guy out walking his dog. I don't know if anyone Ziggy and I encountered on that walk made up any stories in their heads about me based on my Godzilla t-shirt and my hat with a picture of one of the slee stacks from the old kids TV show Land of the Lost. Maybe they did. But if so, none of those stories would be very accurate. In any case, just what I, let me try, try that again. In any case, that's just what I am externally. Internally, though, what am I when I walk the dog? As I walk, I have thoughts, memories, daydreams. Am I my thoughts? I used to identify with them very strongly. I thought of thoughts that passed through my head as belonging to me. I believed they were produced by me. But do I actually choose to think certain things and then summon those images up? I guess I can do that to a certain extent, sometimes. But most of the time, it feels like what I think is not really in my conscious control. I often think about things that I would prefer not to think about. Whose thought, sorry, whose fault is that? Now you can actually hear what my audiobooks would sound like if I didn't edit them. I've decided not to edit this podcast, but uh, my, my audiobook, when you get it, all those little flubs and things, they're edited out. So let's continue. 
I can no more predict my own next thought than I can predict your next thought, dear reader. And I feel like I should sort of apologize here. In, in an earlier draft of the book, I attributed that. I got that line from Sam Harris. Uh, I think Sam Harris is okay. I'm not his biggest fan, though. But anyway, I think it's a really good observation that Sam Harris made, and I want to give credit where credit is due. The reason I took it out of the book is this book is full of quotations from various people and various sources, and I thought, oh God, I'm just overwhelming the the reader with, with so many references to this person and that person. I'm just going to leave this one unreferenced, and you know, it, sorry Sam Harris, I didn't give you credit in the book, but I'm giving you credit on the podcast. So here we go. Uh, let, let me continue. Whatever I am does not seem to be in control of thought. So how can this I that I believe I am be the thing that creates thought? A lot of us believe that our thoughts are our own creation. But when I've looked into sorry, but when I've looked at my own thoughts, that doesn't seem to be the case. If you slow things down by doing a practice like zazen, you can actually watch thoughts sort of bubble up from who knows where. They start off very vague and unformed, and then they sort of ah, sorry, they start off very vague and unformed, and then they sort of firm up and take a more definite form, like jello does when you put it in the fridge. Sometimes they turn into sets of words, like colorful jello words. I just like that imagery. I thought that was funny. In any case, my thoughts are not me. Even when I think of them as having been created by me, it doesn't really seem like they are me. I mean, who is this me that I imagine creates my thoughts? Some invisible and silent thought maker? Many times while doing zazen, I've tried to find the invisible and silent thought maker, but I've never succeeded. If I am not thought, or even the thought maker, I must be something else. Let's get back to my walk with Ziggy Pup. I was out there to do a job, to guide the dog around the neighborhood to pee and sniff the leftover pee of other dogs and get some exercise for both of us. As I rounded the corner near the end of the block where there's a fountain, we saw little Gigi, who is a neighborhood dog that Ziggy loves to play with a lot, and Gigi's person. While Ziggy and Gigi chased each other around, I had a little chat with Gigi's owner, who is my wife's mom's friend. When I met, sorry, let's try that again. When I meet other people walking their dogs, I sometimes ask them how old their dogs are, what their dogs' names are, and stuff like that. Our conversations are mostly pretty trivial and shallow. But shallow and trivial conversations aren't necessarily a bad thing. I enjoy them a lot, in fact. It's good to talk to other people in any capacity, I think. And the reason I wrote that line is because I had a friend years ago, and I assume this friend has grown up and changed a little bit, but back in those days, I remember him being very intense, and he never wanted to talk about anything trivial. He didn't want to get into small talk. He wanted to, if he was going to talk, it had to be about something important. And I sort of agreed with him on one level, but on the other hand, I started thinking, well, you know, a lot is communicated through so-called random, trivial, small talk stuff, and it's really important. So just threw that line in there. 
Let's continue with the book. Occasionally, I ask other dog walkers about themselves, and they ask me about me. We tell each other what we do for a living, where we came from, maybe some interesting places we've gone or things we've done. In short, we talk about our pasts. Is that what I am? My past? Was it my past who was walking Ziggy? Was that me? Was me the guy who wrote a bunch of books about Zen? Was me a guy from Ohio who grew up partially in Africa and then lived in Japan for a long time? Was me the bass player in a band that nowadays only gets together about once a year because the rest of the guys live in Ohio and I live in California? Is the trajectory of this body and mind... Sorry, let me read that again. Is the trajectory that this body and mind have taken me... Let's consider that for a bit. I suppose you could say that every experience I've ever had played some role in my walking the dog today. So in some sense, maybe my past walked the dog. You could say, for example, that because I was born in a certain time and place and made a specific set of decisions throughout my life, I ended up in just the right place to walk Ziggy Pup on a random Thursday afternoon. Because I chose to take a teaching job in Japan in the early 90s and then quit that job, I ended up working for Tsuburaya Productions, the folks who make the TV... Sorry, let me try that again. I ended up working for Tsuburaya Productions, the folks who make the superhero show Ultraman, and they sent me to work at their Los Angeles office, which subsequently closed, leaving me adrift in L.A., and this eventually set off a chain of events that led me to meet my wife, who decided to rescue a dog from a shelter and voila, there I was, walking that dog. Things could have been different, or so we are prone to believe. You could say that if I hadn't taken that teaching job in Japan or made any of a number of other decisions, I wouldn't have ended up walking that dog. Based on that idea, you might say that I could have had some very different other life. Most of us believe that sort of thing. We imagine that our lives could have been different from the way they are. I'm not not so sure I believe that, though. I used to believe that. In fact, I'd often get very worked up about how things might have been. I used to find myself in places I didn't want to be, cursing the fact that I wasn't somewhere else. Then I noticed that, no matter where I was, that was where I was. The idea that I could be somewhere else simply was not true. I can't be anywhere other than exactly where I am. Where I am and who I am seem to be inseparable. And that was a big insight for me. I can actually remember the moment when it really hit me. It was at, uh, this is not in the book, by the way, I'm just uh, telling you this on the podcast. I was at a meeting at Subaraya Productions, and uh, this was a a bad meeting. I suppose anybody who's ever worked for a a company knows this kind of thing where you get into a bad office meeting. I don't remember what it was about, but it was just unpleasant and boring, you know, both unpleasant and boring and annoying. And I kept thinking I could be somewhere else. Why am I here? I could be somewhere different. And then it just struck me that like I wrote in the book, I can't be somewhere different. I am here. This is being here and being me are the same thing. I can't move me into somewhere 
else. That's an illusion. Me and the place I am are exactly the same thing. Dogen says things about this all the time, and it's really true, and it's really important to know because, well, I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll, I'll just read what I said in the book. Here we go back to the book. Life got a lot better when I finally came to terms with that. It's not that I never wish I was somewhere else. Those kind of ideas still come up sometimes. But I know that where I am is just where I am. And, it, and if I want to be somewhere else, I have to get off my ass and go there. The reason that I'm not somewhere else is always the same. I'm not there because I am here. But why am I here? This is not so clear, actually. As we've seen, you could say I am here because of the trajectory my life took in the past and the decisions, decisions I made, ethical and unethical. It's simple cause and effect. I accept that, but I can't actually trace the entire trajectory of my life, even though it seems like it ought to be accessible in my memories. But in fact, all my memories are pretty iffy. Sometimes I think I can remember a situation clearly, and then I meet someone else who was there at that time, and they tell me I'm completely wrong about significant details. In my first book, Hardcore Zen, I told the story of how Zero Defects, the band I was in back in 1983, and that I'm still in today, got attacked by a bunch of angry rednecks at a bar in Dover, Ohio, where we were booked to play a show. About ten minutes into our set, all hell broke loose. Bottles were flying, chairs were flying, I ran away and hid in the ladies' room. When I was writing Hardcore Zen, I wrote that story of that night... Oh, sorry, let's try again. When I was writing Hardcore Zen, I wrote the story of that night from memory. At the time, I wasn't in touch with anyone else who'd been there. Years later, I made a movie about the hardcore punk scene in Northeast Ohio in those days called Cleveland Screaming. And by the way, you can get that on DVD from Red Hour Records if you want to go uh, try to find it. I think it's pretty good. As part of making that movie, I talked to many of the other people who were also there that night in Dover. They pointed out a whole lot of things I'd forgotten. I realized that much of what I'd said in my book was really totally wrong. And that that's funny, because I made it... I had remembered the attack... Uh, being kind of random, like like the like that we started playing and the audience was they were kind of hostile from the beginning because it it wasn't really. This was rural Ohio, and this bar was mostly a kind of a, a local watering hole bar, and I think they were just trying out this new wave thing, you know, and punk rock was sort of. I don't know, attached to that, but hardcore punk was a step beyond, and, and Zero Defects was really several steps beyond anything they'd had in that bar before. They'd had these, they, there's rockabilly band uh, called Johnny Clampett and the Walkers, who Zero Defects was really good friends with. They'd gone over well uh, at this bar in Dover. I forget the name of the place. 
but anyhow, we, uh, so we got booked and I, I don't know, it, it was, it was kind of a stretch throwing hardcore punk at, a, at an audience that was just, you know, barely able to accept a sort of stray cats ish Johnny Clamp and the walkers were better than the stray cats, but they were, you know, that kind of genre. And, uh, and we came on and everybody was just kind of went nuts and started throwing stuff at us and, and getting really violent and attacking us. But I didn't realize that there had been some confrontations earlier in the evening. I may, I may have known that back in 83, but by the time I wrote the book, which was in the early, two, like 2003 or 2004, like 20 years later, I, uh, I didn't remember all that. So I told it one way. And then when I did the movie, I interviewed a bunch of people who were at the gig in Dover and found out that there'd been some confrontations between our group and the uh, the regulars at the bar before we even started playing. So the stage was kind of set for violence to happen. Anyhow, that's among the things I didn't remember uh, when I wrote that book. I also didn't remember that the PA system we used belonged to our friend Vince, uh, Vince Packard, who uh, did the cover for the Zero Defects uh, CDs that came out much later. He's an artist. Um, I didn't remember that it was his PA, and in the book I specifically said, oh, the PA belonged to the to the bar, but it didn't. It belonged to Vince. So that was another thing I got wrong. Sorry, that was a digression. Let me uh, continue reading the book. A few years ago, I found a diary I'd kept during one of the first Zen retreats I went to with Nishijima Roshi at Tokein, the temple in Shizuoka, Japan, where we did most of our retreats. In the diary, I wrote about some locals taking a bunch of us foreign Zen students for a ride in the back of a pickup truck to go look at fireflies. I don't remember that at all, but it's there in that diary in my own handwriting. Weird. And that's true. I, I found that, to, I don't know, maybe as I was working on this book, I, I discovered this diary and a bunch of stuff. And, uh, and I was just shocked to read this story. And even though I have looked at it and read it now a couple of times, you know, uh, in, in my own handwriting. I don't remember doing that, but, uh, but there it is in my handwriting. And so it's become part of my memory. And I realize that that's the way memory works. It's often not a, a straight line from the thing happened. It's stuck in my head. And now I remember it often. I remember things by putting together a story based on a photograph I've seen or a diary in this case that I've read and, and other things or, or the, the stuff uh, that I just told you about, about that gig in Dover. Now I remember, in inverted commas, as the British say, the, you know, the, the con confrontations between the, the punks and the, the regulars at the Dover bar, but I didn't remember that until they told me. So do I really remember that? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, anyway, let's keep going with the book. Even when it comes to very recent events, it's mostly a blur. I could tell you what I had for breakfast today, a banana and peanut butter smoothie. And I know that I made a video for my YouTube channel a couple of hours ago and then worked on writing this book. But there are lots of details that are lost forever, more than I'll ever know. My memories, therefore, are not a particularly reliable guide to what actually happened in my life.
I can recount my life story. I do that a lot these days in interviews. But I know I'm probably getting it wrong, as in the case of my book Hardcore Zen. That stuff with the rednecks who attacked us in the bar was only part of it. I think we all do this. We fill gaps in our memories with purely made-up stuff, and then we don't really know which parts actually happen. I'm not even sure I was ever actually born. I know that probably sounds kooky, but I have no memory of my own birth. My mom remembered it, but then again, what she remembered was the moment she pushed me out of her body. That was on what they call my birthday. But was that the day I came into existence? Surely I was alive before then, at least for some time. When exactly did I start? There are loads of political debates about that question, but nobody really knows the answer. Even if I could pinpoint the exact moment when something identifiable as my individual human life began, was that really the beginning? Was I alive as something else before then? Even if you don't believe in reincarnation, maybe you could say that before my conception I was alive as a sperm and as an egg. If so, I was two individuals who merged into one. So who the heck was walking Ziggy Pup? Was it my future? Was it all the things that I worry might happen to me? Was it all the things I look forward to? Those are just thoughts. They come and they go. And, as I said, my thoughts do not seem to be me. I worry about my future sometimes, just like anyone else. But worrying about my future has only limited value. If I were to look at my bank balance and see that there wasn't enough for next month's rent, then worry might be appropriate. But in most cases, worries about the future are far more abstract and far less practical. There are literally infinite ways a person might die, for example, and some of them are really scary. But what's the sense in imagining speculative scenarios of my death, or imagining what it would be like if nobody ever bought my books and I went broke, or imagining an infinite variety of other things that might happen? Yet lots of us waste far too much mental energy on such imaginary scenarios. Thankfully, I seem to have finally learned not to follow those sorts of thoughts very far when they come up. It took lots of hard Zen practice to get there, though. When you do Zazen for long periods, it seems like the brain starts churning up all kinds of random memories and fears and stuff like that. At first, it can be extremely distracting. But after a while, you just get sick of it. My friend Greg, that guy from Tassajara Zen Monastery who wrote the song I quoted a few chapters ago, said that it's kind of like a piece of gum you keep chewing even after all the flavor is gone. Eventually, you realize that you need to just spit it out. Oh, a little trivia, by the way. I mentioned a song that my friend Greg Fain wrote, and in the book version, in the print book version, I just printed the lyrics. In the audiobook version, if you get that, I used a little snippet of Greg and I forget who his friend is uh, doing the harmonies, but Greg and a friend of his actually singing the song. So you actually get a little snippet of the song. And you get two other songs in the book as well. So look for that. That's in the audiobook only. Okay, back to the book. Okay, 
So if that isn't me, then was the me who walked the dog my experience of walking the dog? Was me my experience of the sunshine on my face, the earth and concrete beneath my feet, the feeling of the leash in my hand, the sight of Ziggy's furry butt waddling about four feet in front of me? I've learned to keep a sharp eye on him since he's escaped from his harness a couple of times. As I walked Ziggy, there seemed to be a human-shaped something with eyes and other sense organs who experienced the walk as a physical being participating in a physical event. Was that me? I'm sure other people would define it that way. They might say that Brad Warner, a physical being, took his dog, Ziggy Pup, for a walk. Simple. But what was the me who subjectively experienced that? I honestly do not know. There's a story about Bodhidharma, the Indian Buddhist master who brought the Zen form of Buddhism to China. The story goes that the emperor wanted to meet him, so Bodhidharma went to the palace. The emperor told him all about the Buddhist temples he'd built and asked Bodhidharma what merit he had acquired by doing so. Bodhidharma said, no merit. Then the emperor asked him about the highest truth. Bodhidharma said, there is only vast emptiness, nothing holy. So the emperor asked Bodhidharma who he, Bodhidharma, was. Bodhidharma said, I don't know. If the emperor of China had invited me to his place and asked me who walked Ziggy Pup, I'm not so sure I would have had the guts to answer like Bodhidharma did, but the most honest answer is the one he gave, I don't know. I subjectively experienced a walk with a dog, or at least that's how I'd describe it. I feel like the same person who walked the dog is typing this right now. The person who is typing this certainly has specific memories of that walk with Ziggy Pup that no one else has. Presumably, these memories could be verified by whatever surveillance cameras might have caught parts of the walk or by people who, were, who witnessed the walk, if anyone would recall such a mundane thing. If I had committed a crime during that walk, like I've, if I'd failed to pick up Ziggy's poop, then the person who is typing this now would be considered the guilty party. But is it me who walked the dog? In conventional terms, that's what I'd tell someone who asked who didn't want a long philosophical discussion about the nature of the self, but honestly, I am not sure. When I get worked up about me, what am I getting worked up about? As I said, I might start worrying about things that might happen to me in the future, but I'm not sure if future me will experience any of the things I worry about. And I'm not sure if, even if future me did experience those things, it would be anything like what the me of right now imagines. Lots of things in the past that I anticipated would be horrible turned out just fine, while lots of things that I looked forward to ended up being kind of crappy. Whatever can be thought is just a thought. My most terrifying fears are just secretions of my brain. My most joyful anticipations are nothing more than energy bopping around in my head. My deepest regrets are just brain farts. I might get worked up about my past, about things I did and that I regret having done, but again, who did those things? 
As I said, if I'd done something criminal, a court could determine me to be guilty, which is one reason I avoid doing anything illegal. But even though I haven't broken any major laws, I still have regrets. Everyone does. But once we do something, we can never go back and undo that thing. As my teacher said, once we do something, it's carved into the universe. In some sense, all those past things I did, the unethical ones I regret, the ethical ones I'm proud of, and the neutral ones I've utterly forgotten, are sitting here now typing this book. Maybe some of those things that I regret the most made me a better person somehow. Maybe some of the things I take pride in having accomplished aren't really that great. But are they me? Are they the something that watches my fingers type these words? Are they the something that watches thoughts form into words? Are they the something that abides even in deepest dreamless sleep who somehow reacquaints itself with the life trajectory of Brad Warner every morning after having not been anything at all for most of the night, or after having been someone else in a dream? The fact is, I don't know me at all. When I look at it this way, me seems to be made up mostly of memory and imagination. When I describe me in conventional terms, all I'm really describing is my iffy memories of my past and my imaginary and usually mistaken ideas of my future. Yet something was out there walking the dog, something real. And something real is typing this right now. And something real is reading this to you right now on my podcast. And it's not just memory and imagination. Maybe what I'm writing is based on memory and imagination, but the me who's writing it seems to be something else. When someone yells, Brad, I respond. When I respond to my name, a certain feeling comes with that. It's a far more definite feeling of me-ness, if there is such a word, than when I simply think of myself as me. There's an old Zen story that relates to this. It goes something like this. A guy named Goei visited Sekito Kisen, who was a very famous Zen master, and said to him, If you can say something I agree with, I'll stay here and study with you. If not, I'll leave. Sekito didn't respond. Goei figured he'd bested Sekito and walked out of Sekito's temple, swinging his sleeves widely with pride, as folks did back in those days. We've seen that move before. And this is a reference to uh, some koans that I'd mentioned earlier in the book. Anyway, when Goe was almost at the temple gate, Sekito yelled, Hey, Goe! Goe turned his head. Sekito said, From birth to death, it's just like this. Goe immediately awakened to the truth and later became a renowned master. Usually this story is explained by saying that Goei was trying to play an intellectual game with Sekito. Then Sekito made him suddenly aware of the real situation at that very moment, and he was awakened to the truth. Which is fine if you like explanations like that. I'm not so sure that's the best explanation, though. This was one of the first koan stories I ever heard. I never forgot that last line, from birth to death, it's just like this. But I forgot the rest of the story. It took me ages to find it again. 
What strikes me about the story is the way Goe came to his awakening when he heard his own name, followed by, from birth to death, it's just like this. The moment he turned his head, Goe was face to face with reality. Nobody called out my name when I was walking Ziggy Pup this afternoon. There were no Zen masters standing at the bus stops I passed, waiting to awaken me to the truth of the universe. Even if there had been, I wonder if I'd gotten it. Moments of awakening seem to happen on their own terms. You can't force them. And the specific trigger that works for one person at one time probably won't work for anyone else ever again. Names are interesting. Ziggy responds to his name, so he must have some feeling of identification with his name. I even had a cat who responded to his name. There must be something very primal about that sort of identification. It is a shock to discover that the same thing you identified with your personal name is also the basis for the entire universe, that the entire universe is made exclusively of the very thing you've always identified with your personal name. And I'm going to leave it there. That is not the end of the chapter. The chapter goes on for several more pages, but I think that's enough, and you kind of get the idea of what's in the book. And I hope you all go out and buy it, because uh, then it'll become a million seller, and then I can live happily ever after. I don't know if that will really happen, but it would, uh, it would fix my financial situation, I suppose, if it made a million seller status, and it would be nice. But you know, my books don't usually sell a million. Anyway, we'll see what happens. So there you go. That's the book. It's a book about ethics, but it's also a book about stuff like that. And what I've tried to do in the book is connect the Buddhist teachings on ethics to the Buddhist teachings on other things like the real meaning of who and what we are. Because I think it's significant. And I think a lot of people kind of miss that. And it's, it's a teaching which even Zen people sometimes seem to miss. I don't want to say... It's, it sometimes just get, gets lost in the mix. Not that that the teachers always don't know it, but, but sometimes it gets lost in the mix. And I thought this was an important topic to, to talk about because I, I see this happen. I, this has probably happened ever since human beings have been alive, but I see it happening very keenly these days is people who want to be good. They want to do the right thing. They want to do the good thing. But rather than doing the actual right thing, they get seduced by causes. They get seduced by things that are put out as propaganda, often by the government, uh, by uh, the media. You know, they, it, it's, it's very easy to kind of hook people into, if you want to be a good person, you'll do this. And if you spread that message power, powerfully enough, then you can get people to actually believe that doing even the worst things you could possibly imagine are good things. Yeah, I, you know, I hate to invoke Nazi Germany, but that's how Nazi Germany started. Nazi Germany didn't start off with a bunch of people going, let's be evil, ha ha ha, let's do awful things to innocent people. <laughs> Nothing like that. It, it was a successful propaganda effort by people who were very good and people who understood the techniques of advertising and things like that, which were just in their infancy in those days telling people what 
it is to be a good person, but telling them absolutely the wrong thing. And this still happens today, and I don't want to get into specifics, but you can still see it happening today, where people are being told what is good by the media and by others, and not not getting not getting it, not not understanding that what they're being told is wrong. And I think the reason is because they haven't looked at who and what they really are. And if you look at who and what you really are with these deep sort of philosophical questions that I'm trying to put in my book, I think it helps us discover what is truly ethical. And what is truly ethical is often greatly at odds with what the media, the government, and everybody else, and our friends, and all the other folks are selling us on. Often they're just selling us a product and or, or trying to increase their own power by telling us, if you want to be good, you'll obey me, that kind of thing. That's, that's a very dangerous thing, and it can go really badly, and, and I think it often does. So that's why I wrote this book. I don't think the world knows that it needs my book, <laughs> but I think the world really needs this book. So there. That's what I wrote. So anyway, the book is called The Other Side of Nothing. It's from New World Library. It's available wherever books are sold. I've seen it at a bookstore in Pasadena, California. Uh, so uh, it's showing up at bookstores already. So buy it from a brick-and-mortar bookstore and support brick-and-mortar bookstores or buy it online if you don't have a brick-and-mortar bookstore nearby. Uh, any little bit helps. And um, I appreciate it. And I think I think you'll like it. I think you'll like the book, honestly. I think it's a good book. Anyway, that's me. That's the end of my podcast for today. If you want to support me doing this podcast, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main and usually only ways of making a living. The last royalty check I got for the previous book I wrote was really bad, really trivial. I don't want to complain, but it wasn't much. It wasn't anything I could make a living off of. But your donations are what I make my living off of, and that I really appreciate. So we'll see you next time. I hope I will. I'm going to try to make these podcasts a weekly thing. Uh, We'll see if I succeed in my uh, intentions or not, but I'm going to try to go back to making one podcast a week. Uh, Let's hope I can do it. And we'll see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye.